how are you doing? Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined in studio, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. You know, we're going to talk about all-stars today. That was not an all-star intro. <laughs> Joe Come Wolf. on, man. I'm trying, okay? I, I applaud the fact that I'm you... I'm running out of greetings here. You weren't lying when you said you had a plethora of greetings <laughs> in your bag. Yeah. Well, we're scraping the bottom of the barrel now, but we press on. As Cash just mentioned, we are going to talk about all-stars today. Last week, we gave you our mid-season awards picks. And today, um, with the starters set to be announced on Thursday, we're going to run through our picks for the 2020 All-Star Game. Before we get into that, let's just talk quickly about the New Orleans Pelicans. Zion Williamson set to make his long-awaited, much-anticipated NBA regular season debut. And I'm just so fascinated by, obviously, by Zion, but by this team right now because they're kind of on a nice little roll here. And they got a huge win over the Memphis Grizzlies last night. On the road, too. Yeah, and, and obviously the Grizzlies were really rolling on a seven-game win streak, which was the longest in the league, before it got snapped. And this is a team, essentially, that the Pelicans are going to be chasing for that eighth and final playoff spot. And they're by no means out of the race. We've talked about their soft schedule down the stretch. The fact that they are getting Zion back, that they are, you know, as a team, healthier than they've been pretty much all season. Brandon Ingram continues to absolutely roll. And I'm sure we'll talk about him when we talk about our All-Stars. Uh, what do you think? What do you think this is going to look like when Zion's back in the mix? And what's your outlook like for this Pelicans team looking toward the second half? I think they got a great shot to make the playoffs. That huge win they got in Memphis was the difference between starting the Zion era three point five games back of eight or five point five games back mm-hmm. of eight. Three and a half games out with half the season remaining and the easiest schedule of the bunch, I think, is very manageable for this team, especially if Zion is anywhere close to what we expected of him. I expect a minutes limit, obviously, yeah. off the top, and that might affect things in certain ways. You know, maybe Zion looks great, and it's a tight game, and he's the best player on the court, and he can't play down the stretch. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how Alvin Gentry manages those minutes because a minutes limit doesn't necessarily have to mean he doesn't play down the stretch. It just means you have to manage them properly so yeah. that maybe you do have them down the stretch. So I'm interested to see that, and I'm fascinated to see how a two-man game with him and Brandon Ingram works because... One thing I've been mentioning a few times this season is that Brandon Ingram's pick and roll numbers are really solid. And if him and Zion can form, you know, a devastating pick and roll, that might be the Pelicans offense from here to eternity. I think it's going to come down to how often they're playing Zion alongside Favors. Because I think if Favors is on the floor, and we've seen this with LA, right? When we thought LeBron and AD were going to pick and roll teams to death but AD has played so much alongside traditional centers that there just hasn't really been that space for him to serve as a role man on a consistent basis. He's either, you know, if they're running pick and roll at all, he's usually popping. And if not, he's kind of operating out of the post or he's spotting up on the perimeter while LeBron's running pick and roll with like Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee. And, you know, Zion's not as viable a floor spacer as Davis is. So I don't see that happening for him, but he can... He can still work as like a second side attacker if Ingram's running pick and roll with Favors, for instance. But I think, you know, if Favors is there standing in the dunker spot, it's going to be the same issue where there isn't enough space for Zion to roll to the rim necessarily. I, don't, I mean, maybe they could even invert that pick and roll, That's right? That's what I was just thinking too. I think that they're going to have a lot of interesting options, both in terms of how they play stylistically and what their lineup combinations look like. So. I think just a lot to look forward to as as, um, this team gets fully healthy and and Zion joins the fold. He was the it rookie coming into this season, and obviously John Morant has taken that mantle, but Zion in the preseason was absolutely nuclear. And I think, like you said, this this team has as good a chance as probably any in this mix to sneak into that eighth seed. The Spurs have been playing well of late. The Suns have actually gotten things together since Aiton's been back, and Aiton's been playing really well too. So I don't think that they're out of it by any stretch. You know, you wrote a great piece about this, about those seven teams that are fighting for that final playoff spot in the West. Gun to your head right now, if you had to pick which team gets that eight spot, who is it? Portland. Portland, okay. Yeah. Is it just because, like, they're getting Nurkic back, presumably? Yeah, they're getting Nurkic. They're supposed to get Nurkic back next month. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in Dame's singular talent enough that I think in a race where you probably only need 40 wins, 
maybe even like 39, I think Dame can drag them there. And I do think Nurkic getting back, I don't think it solves all their problems, but I do think it addresses some of their big problems. One, defensive rebounding. Yeah. Because uh, if you look at some of their underlying defensive numbers, like it's not as bad as you would think. They got to start closing possessions with the defensive rebound. I think he helps there, and I think he helps their offense too because he can make some plays from the middle of the floor. And, you know, I wrote about this in that piece, but them getting back to having an elite offense is almost more important than them getting back to just having a middle-of-the-pack defense. Right. I'm, I'm still really concerned by their lack of fours. Just like big. Lack of talent in general, to be honest, outside of their big two and maybe three. Like. Yeah, but specifically on the defensive side of the ball where, you know, they don't really have any answer for a team that has a, a big wing or like a scoring power forward. And Nurkic in that regard is only going to help them so much, especially given like he's going to be on a strict minutes limit when he comes back. And we really don't know how effective he's going to be because he's coming back from a vicious injury. So I, obviously they've been there before and they've done it. Um, they have had a really successful five-year run here. And, you know, like I've said in the past, their floor is always going to be pretty high with Lillard and McCollum in that backcourt. But I don't know if they are the team that I would pick. I feel like I would put the Spurs ahead of Portland if I was picking. But really, I wouldn't be surprised to see any of the, you know, the Spurs, the Suns, the Grizzlies, the Blazers, or the Pelicans grab that last spot. I think the Kings and the Wolves at this point are pretty well out of it. Yeah, they're five They're five games back with five or six teams to leap. I think those are the two that are falling out of it. Yeah. All right, so with that out of the way, uh, let's jump into this here with, with our all-star picks. Which conference do you want to start in, Cash? You pick. All right, why don't we start in the East, since we are on the East Coast here. So how we're going to do it is we're, we're going to assume that the, the fan vote is not a thing, that we're essentially just getting to pick starters and reserves. So, you know, a fan vote essentially that has a uh, Trey Young in a starter spot right now and Derek Rose and Kyrie Irving within spitting distance of a starting spot. We're going to throw that out the window and just pick our own starters and our own reserves. So let's start with the Eastern Conference front court. We'll have our three starters and our three reserves, and then we'll move over to the back court. So who are your three Eastern Conference front court starters. All right. Well, obviously Giannis, which I, to be honest, I don't even think we have to talk about. Like we, yeah, we, I mean, we, we, we talked about him as the MVP last week. Yeah. I made my case for him as MVP and defensive player of the year. Right. So we, we quite obvious why we both got him yeah. in, in this starting. Uh, Joel Embiid, who I mentioned to you off air yesterday, I was considering dropping from my starting three. He's still, it's not like he's missed half the season. He's missed some time recently. He still played more than 30 games. And I think, it's going to become a a running trend here for me in this episode, but I, there were certain calls where I just, you know, thought, keep it simple, stupid, and, you know, don't overthink this. Joel Embiid's one of the three best front court players in the Eastern Conference, and he's played enough minutes, so he's in there. And then I went with Pascal Siakam, okay. who over, is on over track Jimmy Butler. over Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, because I thought Butler and Bam, you can make the case almost for both of them equally. Uh, but I went Pascal Siakam. The thing that tilted the scales for me was the fact that between the three of them, between Pascal, Butler, and Adebayo, even though Pascal missed some time, he usage-wise, especially early in the year, he was asked to carry the biggest load there. And when Lowry went down early in the season, that especially was true. So that that, that did tilt the scales for me because as much as I like a complete game and, and Bam has a complete game, well, A, Siakam does too, so it's not like that's a knock against them. But I do think that if things are close, I'd usually go with who has to carry the bigger load. And even though it's weird to say Pascal does because the Raptors are deeper than the Heat are, for at least the first chunk of the season, he was carrying a load that neither Butler nor Adebayo was on a team you know that's right there with Miami. So I gave Siakam the edge. I went with Butler. And first of all, I just want to say how silly it is that Butler is here as a front court right, player that's... and not as a guard. He's starting alongside Kendrick Nunn, Duncan Robinson, Myers Leonard, and Bam. Like I, I guess do they maybe consider Nunn and Robinson the backcourt? They shouldn't. Like that's, no, I, I'm I, saying that's the only thing that makes it, it. It doesn't make any sense to me, and and especially given the fact that like they aren't starting a traditional point guard, Butler for I'd say the majority of their offensive possessions when he's on the floor without Goran Dragic is Miami's point guard. Functionally speaking, he has you know been their primary creator the majority of the time, and his assist numbers bear that out. His time of possession bears that out. Like, I I consider him a guard, and I think it's strange that he was, you know, labeled as a front court player here. But 
given that that is the case, I do think he's been a bit better than Siakam this season. He's played more often than Siakam this season. Um, Siakam, I think, he had an unbelievable start, but he's tailed off since then, especially since coming back from that groin injury, which is understandable. He's, you know, working himself back in. But I, I just think that Butler's been a bit better. And even though his three-point shot has completely disappeared... fall off a cliff. His true shooting is still above his career average and well above league average because his free throw rate has gone totally through the roof. And as a guy who's just able to put pressure on the rim, I think he has done so much to keep that heat offense afloat. And like I said, as a playmaker as well, he is setting the table. Obviously, that system is not really like the systems that he's played in in the past. It's a lot more player and ball movement oriented. Um, But I think he's fit in unbelievably well, both as an on-ball and an off-ball guy, because he's really been super effective, I think, as a cutter who's playing off of guys like Adebayo. And I I think he's just been the biggest driver of winning for what's been an overachieving team. And another thing is like the Heat crunch time offense last year was essentially their undoing. That was the reason they didn't make the playoffs. They were... I believe dead last in the NBA or maybe 29th in crunch time offensive rating. I think they were 29th because I think, if I remember correctly, Charlotte was 30th, weirdly enough, even though they had Kemba. So they're up to 13th in crunch time offensive rating this year. They're 13-6 and in games that involve crunch time, which means, you know, within five points in the final five minutes. They're 7-0 and in overtime games which is one of the craziest stats in the league this season. And Jimmy has a lot to do with that. And, and Butler's, obviously, you know, ability to take over games offensively down the stretch has been a, a huge boon. So I'm going to go with him as my third front court starter with uh, Siakam finishing a close fourth. Yeah, I, uh, so do you want to fill out the, the front court reserves or go to the back court starters? Yeah, let's just fill out the front court reserves just okay. because, obviously, you, know, you mentioned Bam being in the mix, and we talked about Siakam. So let's, let's talk about the other guys who are... Uh, on our ballots, at least, yeah. <laughs> in the front court. So, yeah, so uh, Butler and Bam, both obvious calls for me. I think someone could talk me into one of those guys being my three starters over Siakam. Uh, I had Butler a little ahead of Bam because I, I think they're both complete players for a really good team. And Butler's usage rate, though, is five percentage points higher. And I don't think that should settle basketball debates. But, again, when it's, like, this close and they're on the same team and one guy carries a larger load, I think that has to give them the edge. But they're both in. Uh, which leaves one front court spot left, and I went with Sabonis. So did I. Because DeMontis Sabonis has been the best player and a two-way player. He's been the best player on a Pacers team on pace for 52 wins without Victor Oladipo. And that's in a tough East. This isn't 52 wins because they're beating up on crap teams. Like This is a tough Eastern Conference race where the top six is a bloodbath, and yet this team has hung around long enough to stay in the mix so that when Victor Oladipo gets back, they still have a, you know, a decent chance at the two or three seed Mm -hmm. and while it's been a complete team effort and I've mentioned Nate McMillan not getting enough credit I don't think there's any doubt that Sabonis has been their best player and I think he should be rewarded for that I agree um their schedule is about to get really tough and we're gonna see what this team is really made of Oladipo's return is a couple weeks away and they're gonna hit a tough part of schedule I think before he gets back but to your point I think you know, as much as Brogdon is the guy who is relied upon to make Sorry, stuff, just, to, just to, January 29th is actually the target date. Okay. Yeah. As much as Brogdon is the guy who's relied upon to make stuff happen off of the bounce late in games, Sabonis ultimately is the common denominator, I think, with their offense. Whether he's playmaking from the elbow or in being involved in pick and rolls with any one of the Pacers guards, um, you know, he'll run pick and roll with Brogdon. He'll run it with Aaron holiday. He'll run it with Jeremy lamb. He'll run it with TJ Warren and his ability to be a role man who is rumbling all the way to the basket or making plays on the short roll, his ability to attack switches. Like some teams will switch that pick and roll and he will just immediately go to work in the post. And he's either going to score or he's going to draw a quick double team and he's going to fire a pass to an open shooter. He has also carried their transitional lineups. Like, he plays a lot with bench guys. And if you watch, say, Doug McDermott play, his entire game is just predicated on shooting threes off of off-ball screens from Sabonis. And he's shooting, like, 44% from deep as a result. Um, So I think uh, Sabonis has been, like, the most crucial component of that team's offense. And he's also been really solid at the defensive end of the floor. That wasn't really his forte, coming into the season, but 
I think his ability to get out on the floor and, and guard stretchier fours on the perimeter has allowed Turner to hang back near the basket and has made that front court pairing uh, work in a way that it that we didn't necessarily know if it was going to. So th- this wasn't really even a question to me. I think he's a guaranteed all-star and absolutely belongs in that mix. Like I don't think he is that far behind Bam in terms of overall impact this season. I think Bam has been, for me, Bam has been better. But if Jimmy Butler wasn't on that Heat team and Bam was the best player on Miami, I don't know if they'd be ahead of Indiana in the standings. And I think maybe that speaks to Sabonis' value right there. Yeah, and weirdly enough, like if you look at the impact numbers, they paint Sabonis' work at the defensive end as actually the place where he's contributed the most value. I find that pretty dubious, but... It just it just goes to show you like the work that he's put in at that end of the floor and how it's paying off. And I think, to your point, like if you switched those two guys, I don't know that you would see a whole lot of difference. Like I don't necessarily think that the Pacers would be better with Bam there instead of Sabonis, and I don't think the Heat would be worse with Sabonis there instead of Bam. I think they have actually pretty similar skill sets in terms of their playmaking ability. I do think Adebayo is a better defender, but I don't think it's like some big gap. I think they're both extremely deserving. So I had them both as front court reserves, along with Siakam. All right, who are your East backcourt starters? I got Kemba, and I got Kyle Lowry. Lowry might be a surprise to some people. Why don't we actually just talk? So I had four guards, essentially. Obviously, like, the two starters and the two reserves. But all four of them, like, I actually had a tough time picking the starters because I don't think there's a whole lot to differentiate those four. So why don't we just talk about all those four kind of in conjunction? You can tell me first who your starters are from that group. Kyle Lowry and Ben Simmons. Okay. I think so. the amount of guards in the East that have that you can say have definitely been better than Kyle Lowry so far this season are the same number of guards in the East that you can say absolutely have a bigger booty than him, and that's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely zero. All right, well, we can get into that uh, <laughs> in a sec. I will... I'm going to throw Chris Middleton into the mix. He was, yep. he was the fourth guy who obviously is, is a reserve. So we've agreed on 10 so far. Yeah. All six front court and all four back court. <laughs> yeah. We've said are the 10 that we both agree are definite all-stars, whether yeah. they're starting or not. Which is, I, I don't think there's much to debate there, no. honestly. Like no. In terms of, I mean, we can talk about Trey Young, I guess, in a sec, and Bradley Beal as well. Like Those are the guys, I suppose, who you might quibble about not being in that mix. But to me, it was those four guys who I considered as starters. And I went with Lowry and Kemba. I think Kemba has just, I think he's just been magnificent. Um, He has been the biggest reason to me that the Celtics have been one of the best pull-up jump shooting teams in the league. He has given them just such a dynamic element as far as attacking pick and roll coverages. Teams that play a drop against the Celtics have really gotten burned by his ability to, whether it's pulling up, from three and burning that drop when the Celtics are setting those screens higher up on the floor or when the big's coming up to play a bit higher. I think he's been so good at attacking downhill and getting to the rim. I think he's just done a great job of managing that offense and essentially taking over when he has to, but striking a balance between doing that and also playing off of the ball, taking a step back and allowing guys like Tatum and Brown to spread their wings a little bit. And I think that's been really important for that team, and especially for those two guys after what was an up-and-down season for them last year. Yeah, I mean, Kemba's been great for the Celtics, and I think if you talk to a lot of the guys on that team, without throwing shade at Kyrie, they'd also talk about how great of a leader Kemba has been, right, and how positive he is to be around. I remember a few years ago reading about, I don't remember who wrote it, but maybe you'll remember it. It was a long-form feature on Dirk as a teammate and about how even just like little things like they tracked his contact with teammates, right? Like high-fiving them, patting them on the butt, like just things like that. And the amount of times he would do that in a game, whether they're up by 20, down by 20. And I kind of get the same vibes from Kemba when I watch him, same way in Charlotte and now in Boston. And look, I don't know. There's no way to quantify that. And it probably shouldn't factor into an all-star debate. But if you're just talking about like impact over the course of a season and keeping things kind of like light and positive, like those things matter because... There's going to be ups and downs in the court. Like, I don't care how good your team is. There's going to be a week, at least, where for whatever reason, it just kind of feels like the world's falling in on you, and you need guys like that, especially when they're your best players. And that's something I've noticed about Kemba, in addition to how great he's been, especially on the offensive end, is just the fact that he really does seem to, without being too loud, 
he still finds a way to kind of like glue this team together and keep them focused and keep them going in the right direction. I, I just don't think you can quantify that. Well, you can maybe quantify it in the win column. Yeah, right. good point. And this team, I think like Miami, has overachieved this year, at least relative to my expectations. I expected them to be better than the Heat, but I didn't expect them to be succeeding to the extent that they are, given the losses that they suffered in the front court especially. And another thing I'll say for Kemba is, like, the Celtics switch a ton on defense, and he has really held his own at that end of the floor on switches, despite his diminutive stature. And I think he deserves credit for that, too. But, you know, having said all that, you didn't have him as the starter. You had Simmons over him. So why don't you make the case for Simmons as a starter? Look, I think I, I, along with a lot of other people, have railed on Simmons for various reasons. You know, turnover prone, still can't shoot and all that. I think this guy manages to be underrated while being overrated at the same time. And I still don't think people appreciate how good he already is and how he impacts the game without being able to shoot, okay? He's averaging 16 points. I'm rounding here, but essentially 16 points, eight assists, eight rebounds, and two steals on a true shooting percentage of 58.2. Obviously, because of the shot selection, most of it's coming around the rim and he's getting out in transition. He's an awesome defender that can defend almost across all five positions. I wouldn't even say almost. I'd right. say he can. So he defends all five positions. Except he, against like the biggest centers, probably. Right. Yeah, which few guys, few non-traditional centers can guard those guys anyway. So I just think that his all-around game and his ability to impact a game, maybe in ways that people aren't used to, I think should be rewarded. And I think, I think guys that can't shoot, and maybe don't take it over the traditional way of scoring 42 points on any given night, don't seem to get rewarded the same way those offensive-minded guys do. And I think with Ben Simmons, it's important to remember that he's so good at what he does that he is still bending the game offensively. And he's doing it on the other end too. And just because he's not putting up the points, and just because, yeah, he still drives us crazy with the fact he can't shoot, and he makes some really dumb decisions sometimes and turns the ball over— I still think he's been one of the two best backcourt players in the East this season. In a, in a race that we've you know both conceded, you can make the case for all four of these guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, Simmons has become such a high-impact defender. There's no doubt about that. And he is obviously an absolute monster in the open floor. He has predictably blown up during Embiid's absence. You know, it's always sort of been the case that without Embiid there, with the floor a little bit better spaced, that is when he can really thrive. But... At the end of the day, the part that he has played in the Sixers' offensive struggles this season and the fact that their, you know, limitations are directly tied to his limitations is the reason that I couldn't put him in that spot. Because the other guys who are in this mix aren't really taking anything off of the table for their teams. They aren't creating any fit issues or leading to any particular areas of struggle. Like, I think the closest thing would be Kemba at the defensive end of the floor, but, like, the Celtics have been one of the best defensive teams in the league. So he hasn't crippled them at that end at all, whereas I think, you know, Simmons' limitations have actually contributed to a lot of, you know, not just struggles, but also a bit of an identity crisis for that team, and I think that has to be taken into account. You have anything to say about Chris Middleton? Because I, I just think that... Yeah, I do. I mean... Yeah. He's been unbelievable. Yeah. It's, um, first of all, so I, I did this for you, okay? Right. I got his per 32 minute numbers oh, okay. for you. Instead I had to do this 30, manually. Instead of per 36, I like <laughs> um, this. Middleton's counting stats don't really pop off the page because he's playing only 28 minutes a game. Nobody on the Bucks is playing more than 30.6 you know, minutes like, a game. I'd still say his, his traditional numbers are fine 19.6 rebounds, four assists on mm. 49, 42, 89 shooting. But give yeah. me his per 32. Okay, his per 32 is 22 points a game. 6.4 rebounds, 4.9 assists. And he's doing that on basically 50-40-90 shooting splits while contributing very solid perimeter defense for a 39-6 and team. Yeah, he's, he's the second best player on a 70-win team. It was hard for me not to put him as a starter, honestly. I, I came really close to doing so. And I, I'm honestly questioning my decision now because just having read out those numbers, like if he was playing more than 28 minutes a game, which he's only doing because the Bucks are shellacking teams so badly that they can rest their starters for fourth quarters in a lot of games. I think we'd be talking about this guy as a superstar. Like those numbers that I just read out, 22 points, six and a half rebounds and five assists. 
on like almost historic efficiency. Like, like th- those are superstar numbers. And again, he's doing it at both ends of the floor, and the team success is off the charts. So, I think he's an absolute lock to be an All Star. I think he has a strong case to be a starter. And I'll make the case for Lowry and the reason that I picked Lowry over Middleton, but it was really close. The one thing I would say in terms of you know the, the superstar numbers thing is that it's he benefits not, from right, playing a lot. Not all Giannis. of it comes from playing with Giannis, but you know a good chunk of it does come from that. And I don't know if he'd be able to put up those numbers or at least put up those numbers at that efficiency yeah. if he was the guy on that team. And that's ultimately why I went with Lowry over him. Okay, because he hasn't had the benefit of playing alongside a guy like right. that and um you know he also had to carry that team while Siakam missed 11 yeah. games yeah and it wasn't just Siakam right Gasol was out as well Norm Powell was out Fred as well Van Fred was Van Vliet was out and the Raptors were still above 500 during those games <laughs> somehow with Lowry essentially playing alongside multiple G-leaguers I, I just don't think that he ever gets enough credit for the work that he does and how his basketball IQ but also his skill like allows lineups with really any supporting cast to somehow succeed Uh, the one thing I'd add about Middleton too is we talk about the talent gap a lot between Giannis and their second best player who is Middleton I think that speaks more to Giannis how special Giannis Antetokounmpo is than it does you know speak to how lacking Chris Middleton is and even some of the playoff questions I still have about him and the rest of the Bucks roster there can be questions about how you'll perform in the upcoming playoffs, and that doesn't mean you're not an all-star. You know what I mean? So any criticisms we might have of the Bucks roster or Middleton, I, I just don't think even for a second that it should take away from his all-star candidacy because he is, without a doubt, an all-star in the Eastern right. Conference. No, we don't know how they're going to perform right. in the playoffs. Exactly. Like if, again, I've said it pretty much but since even the start if, of even, the season. even like, if he flops... Yeah, it, that, that's not what we're. If he then, we're if he then comes here. out next season and does the same thing, I would still say he's an all star. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think the Bucks are going to flop in the playoffs. That's just my opinion. But uh, again, we're talking in hypotheticals here, and the fact is, his production this season is absolutely deserving of an all star spot. I went with Lowry because of what I mentioned, just because of the workload that he has carried, and he's also missed, I believe, eleven games. But he's second in the NBA in minutes per game. This is a 33-year-old sub-six-foot point guard, second in the NBA in minutes per game. So when you talk about the time that he's missed, it's almost moot because he's actually played more total minutes than guys like Kemba and Middleton. And he's averaging over 20 points a game, uh, four and a half rebounds a game, seven and a half assists per game, 1.2 steals, 58% true shooting, and he has kept the Raptors within a game of second in the East despite their rash of injuries. He is one of the best backcourt help defenders in the league. He's been a huge part of the reason that team is second in defensive efficiency. You've joked about it. He's one of the best rim protectors in the league. It's unbelievable. Like, if you just just watch a defensive possession and watch how many things Kyle Lowry is able to blow up, whether it's as a closeout guy, his closeouts are unbelievable, despite his short stature and the fact that he doesn't really jump that high. And... When he is a help defender, whether it's off the strong side or the weak side, his ability to wedge himself in between a ball handler and the rim, so often you will see a ball handler will beat his guy off of the dribble and think he has a clear path to the rim, and next thing he knows, Kyle Lowry is right there in his path. And he forces so many turnovers because the fear of drawing a charge, like, this is a rule that I think should change because I hate, I hate the fact that you can get a charge when you've already gotten rid of the basketball. That said... That is currently the rule, and nobody is better at drawing those kind of charges than Kyle Lowry. So even if you see him and manage to get rid of the ball, oftentimes it's too late. You'll just bowl him over. And um, it's just it's, it's incredible how many plays he's able to blow up just by being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I've said for years that I think um, he's probably, in terms of just pure basketball IQ, the third smartest player in the league behind only LeBron James and Chris Paul. I'd have Draymond fourth probably in that mix, but I think no, he's absolutely he is absolutely in that mix is one of the most cerebral players in the game and it's the reason that he's probably going to be a hall of famer despite the fact that he doesn't really have the physical tools that you would think a a hall of famer would have his uh his basketball brain has made up for a whole heck of a lot so give me your two wild cards in the east um give me one of them at least okay um trey young Nice. So I had Trey, yeah. and I was I thought we were going to end up debating this, but we didn't. Okay. I mean, I his defense is an issue. 
and it's a big part of the reason the Hawks have been such a disaster at that end of the floor. But, like, his offense has been so ridiculously good. 29 points a game, 8.6 assists, 37% from three on over nine attempts per game. Many of those threes are, like, from 30 feet out. And Atlanta's offense has just completely collapsed. His assist rate is over 40%. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, when he's on the floor, it's... Like, I've talked about this with Doncic and, like, obviously Harden. Like, there, there are certain guys who their team's entire offense flows through them and everything that they do. And even when defenses are trapping Trey and trying to get the ball out of his hands, he is still able to break those traps, whether it's with passes or his handle, honestly. And this was not like, I noticed this in the game they played against the Raptors yesterday. Not too many players can break a Raptors trap while maintaining a live dribble. Like, those guys are huge, and they are really smart and really effective trappers, whether it's, you know, Gasol or Siakam that's bringing that trap. There was one play when Gasol had Trey Young pinned against the sideline with, I believe, Fred Van Vliet there helping to trap, and Trey just dribbled right out of it. Not only did he dribble out of it, he wasn't, like, pulling the ball back to half court. He was continuing along toward the rim and ended up creating a bucket on that possession. He's got an unbelievable handle. His jump shot, you know, last year he was taking all these audacious threes, and I think this year he's actually justifying those audacious threes. He had that one yesterday where he went between Fred Van Vliet's <laughs> yeah. legs on the dribble, picked it up on the other side, and just let it fly. And he yeah, missed he it, but, the three, but it was if you didn't think it was going in when it was in the air, you're lying. He, he's got a ridiculous offensive arsenal, and I just couldn't, I couldn't leave him off in spite of the defensive deficiencies. And honestly, like... I'll talk about my second wild card in a second. For me, this wild card slot came down to Trey Young versus Bradley Beal. And Beal's been awesome. Like, his offensive numbers have also been off the charts. But the Wizards have been worse defensively than the Hawks have. And Beal isn't as bad a defender as Trey Young is. But he hasn't been good. And I don't see why I would give that spot to Beal over... Trey, considering both of those teams have been really bad, and I think Trey's been a lot better at the offensive end. Yeah, I'll also say that Beal has looked disengaged a lot more often this season than Trey Young has. And you know what? Like, it happens over the course of a guy's career, a star's career, when they're on a bad team and they're playing kind of for nothing. He also just locked in that extension. Maybe he just wants to get through this year, be trade eligible, and who knows. But I think there's something to be said for. A player on a bad team who's still playing his ass off every night and despite his limitations, finding a way to impact the game as opposed to Beal, who I'm not, I'm not saying isn't impacting the game because I love what he's doing. But if you've watched the Wizards this season, I think you'll know what I'm saying. There are a lot of possessions and a lot of games in general where Bradley Beal just doesn't seem like he's up for playing balls to the wall that night. And that should count against you in the, when it's a close all-star decision between a guy like him and Trey Young, right. who, as you mentioned, is just everything about his team. And I think... To be as bad as Trey Young is defensively and still be an all-star, you have to be so special on the other end. And he is absolutely that. And I think yesterday against the Raptors was a perfect example. Like, okay, he had seven turnovers and he got torched a few times defensively. He had 42 points, 15 assists, and six rebounds. And the Hawks had a positive rating against a contender when he was on the court, right? And it fell apart without him. So, yeah. like, at some, And that's an incredible defensive team. Right, that that like, and that's what I'm saying. So at some point... Like you got to use logic, and you can't just say, "Well, he's on he he's on literally the worst team in the conference, and I guess the second worst team in the league." Yes, that those are knocks against them. But if you can't watch this guy and appreciate, like, God damn, that's an all star. I don't know what to tell you. And that's we don't really make our picks based on this kind of thing, but it should be mentioned that Trey Young is just like tailor made for the All Star game, right? Like the All Star game needs players like Trey Young who are flashy, who are going to bomb away from 30 feet, who are going to throw some special alley-oop passes. Like, he will fit right in on that stage. And I think he belongs there on merit, but also in terms of his style. So, my second wild card was Jason Tatum. God damn, we actually had the exact same 12-man yeah. all-star team? It was disappointing, eh? <laughs> not, yeah, I, I was really looking not, forward not to one of a, us calling the other one a clown. A spirited debate. Um, obviously, so this one came down to, to Tatum versus Jalen Brown. It's not like I'm so rigid about, oh, the Celtics can't have three All-Stars. I could have put both of them on, but I just felt like, I don't know. It, it, because, because I wanted to have Trey there, it didn't feel right to put both Tatum and Brown there, and it was extremely close for me. I think if we'd done this two or three weeks ago, actually, I probably would have picked Brown, but I think he's faded a little bit 
and that Tatum has come on during that time. Um, their counting stats are virtually identical. Uh, Brown, I think, has been the more efficient scorer, but Tatum has had to carry a bit heavier of a playmaking role. Um, I think Brown's a better one-on-one defender. I think Tatum's a better help defender. So it's just really, really hard to differentiate. And for me, the the tiebreaker was just the impact stats, which have been so high on Tatum all season. And I wouldn't use that as a tiebreaker unless it was impossible to differentiate two guys in any other way. But all season long, the Celtics have been way better with Tatum on the floor. They've been way worse with him off of the floor. And I, I was looking for some like context clues that might explain that. But it hasn't been, it's not like Tatum has spent that much more time playing alongside the Celtics' best players. He's spent maybe a little bit more time with, with bench units playing against other reserve units, but not that much. Ultimately, I just think, you know, if you look any impact metric, whether it's real plus minus, player impact plus minus, on-off statistics, he has been the more impactful player. Uh, and so that's why I picked him over Brown. But again, it was really close and a tough decision. Yeah, Jason Tatum, <clears throat> out of the Celtics' big minute players, by far has the best on-off net rating. Like I'm looking right now. If you look at their top 10 guys uh, in terms of minutes, Jason Tatum's on-off net rating is plus 11.6 per 100 possessions. No one else is even a plus 6. Jalen Brown's a minus 2.3. And uh, like you said, yeah, you, you usually wouldn't use that as a tiebreaker, but... As I've said many times, when it's this close and it's guys on the same team and you can only pick one of them and there's like nothing to choose from, a stat like that, that they're so separated and it does pop out. Yeah. All right. So there you go. We have, uh, we, we differed a bit on our starters versus reserves, but I think it was only what you had Simmons over Kemba and you had Siakam over Butler. And that was the only place we differed. And we had the exact same. 12 all-stars in the east so somewhat disappointing but nice to know that we agree who were your other toughest omissions beal and brown obviously who we talked about um who else who else was tough to omit for you not necessarily tough to omit that because i think the 12 i went with i was pretty confident but tobias harris was one i don't think was getting enough credit like tobias harris is more of a complimentary player and he's the third or fourth best player heck you can make the argument he's been the fifth best player on that team based on the way Josh Richardson's playing but the stats were there on a team that like a really good team uh, efficiencies there the knock on him was that yeah I wasn't going to put three sixers in the game and I couldn't even talk myself into him being the third best sixer uh, numbers wise he was there though Vucevic is like having another good statistical season and his on off numbers are really good but like he's kind of been a shell of what he was last year and, and the first I wouldn't say a shell it hasn't I, I been said, as good but I think the first like 15 games hurt his case because in the first 15 games he was a shell of his yeah. of what he was last year and he's picked it up recently but I don't think that's enough on a bad team to be an all-star Spencer Dinwiddie mm-hmm. was kind of in the mix for me uh, Brogdon yeah Brogdon was it was in there uh Zach Levine numbers wise was there but like, <laughs> the thing with Zach Levine is he's been really good offensively and terrible defensively, but he's nowhere near as special as Trey Young on, on one end. Right. So. Or Beal for that. Matter. Right. So, Yeah, I agree. Uh, Vucevic was, you know, as far as front court players go, probably the toughest cut for me. And uh, and then I had Brogdon and Dinwiddie as some tough omissions in the backcourt. Did you give even five seconds of thought to Devontae Graham or Fred Van Vliet? No. Um, I mean, those guys have been great this season. Don't get me wrong, but... I don't think they're in the class with the guys that we've talked about. And we talked uh, last week when we were talking about most improved player about where Devontae Graham has struggled. And offensively, at least, Van Vliet has had the same sort of issues in that he just has like zero in-between game and really struggles to finish at the rim. So like so much of his value is derived from his three-point shots. And if those shots aren't falling, it's, you know, it can be tough for him to... Uh, to contribute a lot at the offensive end, especially because, you know, those guys are handling the ball a lot. And if they're being forced off of the three-point line, a lot of the time it can actually be damaging to the offense because they wind up dancing with the ball and meandering their way to the rim where they really struggle to finish. So as good as I think those guys have been, I think Van Vliet's been better than Devontae Graham because I think he's a much, much better defender. But I don't think either of those guys are quite in this class. All right, last one before we get to the West. Did you give a second of thought to Andre Drummond in the front court? No. I, d- I did not. No. 
The Pistons have been a train wreck, and yeah. I know it's not Drummond's fault. He's got more turnovers than assists. But, yeah, it's just... <sighs> I don't know. And, and I actually think that Drummond probably gets dumped on more than he deserves. I, I think people consider him to be a total empty stats guy, and I don't think that's quite the case. I actually think that he is good. I think his rebounding matters. I think his defense, when he's really locked in and engaged, can be very, very strong. I just think for the most part... What he does and the way that he sort of fills out the box score does not contribute to winning. It hasn't for his entire career. And there are a lot of circumstances that are behind Detroit's disappointing season. Obviously, Blake Griffin is out for the year, and when he played was uh, simply terrible. So I I don't really put that on Drummond, but again, like as, as good as I think he is and can be, I don't put him in this class. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's go West. Let's go West, young man. I think the starters in the West are pretty intuitive. Like, I don't even know how much time we need to spend on this, but uh, let's hear your front court. Front court starters are LeBron James, Anthony Davis. Yes. Nikola Jokic. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, I had Kawhi, but uh, I'm willing to hear your argument in favor of of Jokic. He has played a lot more. Okay. On a team that I believe right now has actually passed the Clippers in the standings. I think they might have identical records. No, oh, that's interesting. But anyway, go on. I like squabbled between Kawhi and Jokic, and it was a toss-up for me. I was going to hold the fact that Jokic slept off through the first month of the season against him. But then, as much as I completely agree with load management, like if, if I'm going to hold it against a guy that didn't play well for a month, mm-hmm. it should also then factor in that he's played a lot more, you know, and or at least been available more than the guys in the conversation with. And I think since he's turned it around, Jokic has been simply spectacular. I don't know. I, I I could very easily just talk myself to Kawhi over. I think Kawhi is the better player, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Right. By by a mile, even though Jokic is great. Uh, and I don't know. I just don't know how much value we should put in how much a guy played when it's it's somewhat negligible, right? Like Kawhi has missed ten games, which you know we were talking about. That's a quarter of the season so far. We were talking about Lowry and Embiid being starters in the East, and both those guys have missed more than ten games. So does it matter if the 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 absences are not for injury. I don't think it should. I mean, and they are for injury. Like, they can call it whatever they want, but, like, the fact is Kawhi is clearly trying to manage this knee soreness, mm-hmm. and he may have a degenerative quad condition. Like, it, it, Listen, he, I, I'm all for the load management. The other thing I... I he's it, not just doing this because he's lazy and, like, wants to take no, a day of off not. every now and then. He's no, doing I, it because he's managing his body. Like, it's... Right. And I wrote about that earlier in the year, why I think he absolutely should, and the Clippers should do that. Okay, the other thing I'd ask you then, because I thought about this too, for as great as Kawhi is, and as much as I, you know, LeBron's probably the only guy, guy I take in a one-game setting right now over him. In the regular season, I think Kawhi turns it on when he needs to, and that I'm fine with that again in the grand scheme of things, but I do think he can coast through games a little bit too. And, like, that that all kind of came into this debate for me. Um, I don't know. I, just, I think he's been pretty spectacular, honestly. And, yeah, maybe he coasts sometimes, but their defense has been so much better with him on the floor. And I think, you know, if you're kind of comparing, like, Paul George has missed a lot of time too, but by far the more impactful absence when he's missed time has been Kawhi. They've been a lot better when Kawhi plays without PG than the inverse. So if you're looking at a team that, you know, despite everybody seemingly being kind of disappointed in them. They're still on pace for like... They're 30 and 13, and they're top 10 on both sides of the ball. So I don't know. I feel like 
given all that, given the fact that Kawhi, I think, has been by far the best player on that team, he's averaging 27 points, 7 they, rebounds, 5 assists. Like, Are they the two seed right now? They're tied with Denver. Okay, so they are they're, they're all 30 and 13. Okay. So, you know, whatever. I'm willing to hear out an argument for Jokic. He's been awesome lately, but I just think Kawhi is way better. And in spite of the missed time, he should probably be starting. But with that, why don't we move on to the front court reserves? So, obviously, you have Kawhi there, and I have Jokic there. Who are your other two front court reserves? Brandon Ingram mm-hmm. and Rudy Gobert. I had Gobert. You didn't have Ingram? I didn't have Ingram. Um, I put Towns. Wow. It was, it was really tough. So I had, you know, it was between Towns, Ingram, and PG. Towns and PG have both only played 26 games. I think in those 26 games that Towns has been better than George has. George has been great, but I actually think, like, his defense hasn't quite been what it was last season. And offensively, he has had some really tough shooting nights. And I think... I don't know. It just I don't think he's quite cranked it up to 10. And I feel like Towns in spite of the fact that that team season has gone into the tubes. It mostly happened while he was out with injury, and when he's played, I just think he's been spectacular and expanded his game to the point that he is now handling the ball a little bit more, taking a ton of threes and like threes off of the dribble, step back threes. I think he's really improved as a passer like He's been one of the best offensive players in the league when he's been healthy. And I just, I know Ingram hasn't missed time and Ingram's been great in the games that he's played. He's played 500 more minutes on a team ahead of Minnesota in the standings despite the world coming down around them and all those injuries. And he's had to carry that team. Yeah, I'm aware. It was tough. It was a tough decision. And I have no problem with putting Ingram there ahead of him. But I just think, I still think Towns is quite a bit better. And in spite of the missed time, uh, I just I couldn't I couldn't knock him out. Yeah, I've got nothing to to add to that other than what I already said. I just think Ingram, he's played 500 more minutes. You know, if this was like he's played like two extra games, or you know, Towns has played less games, but he's playing so like the Lowry factor you mentioned, where he's missed 10 games, but he's playing so many minutes in the games that it almost makes up for. Like, I just don't think that's the case here. I think Towns has missed too much time on a bad team that. Quite frankly, I don't even think he deserves all-star consideration this year. <laughs> he doesn't deserve consideration. He's missed like 15 out of 40 games mm-hmm. on the f- 13th place team in the West. But the, again, like they're not 13th in the West because of him. I, I think he, he factors into that. In what way does he factor into it? He, so I thought he took a step forward last year defensively. I really yeah. did. I think he's back to being essentially a sieve on that end this year. Like I think Brandon Ingram has put a hell of a lot more effort on the defensive end this season. And, you know, I mentioned the whole, like, playing balls to the wall. Like, Carl Anthony Towns, to me, this year looks like the guy he did two years ago where the counting stats are there, the efficiency is mind-blowing, and yet you watch him and you can see him coasting through quarters. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I've necessarily seen that from him. And I know he does have defensive deficiencies, but since they've essentially started having him play the five full-time and he's dropping back and hanging closer to the rim... Like, his rim protection numbers are astounding. And, you know, that's not everything. There are areas of defense where they still get burned with him on the floor. Uh, Teams shoot way better from three-point range when he's on the floor. And some of that you could put on him, but I would wager that a lot of it is luck. And I don't think, like, in his role defensively, I don't think he's been bad this season at all. And the Wolves as a team have actually been middle of the pack defensively. Where they've really stumbled is at the offensive end, which is surprising, but... Certainly don't think that's anything that you can put on Towns. Um, So I I strongly considered George. I strongly considered Ingram. And ultimately, I went with Towns. And I feel okay about it. Backcourt? I think the two starters. Do we need to talk about Gobert at all? I mean, we we both just sort of like threw him in there without question. But So we both had Gobert? Yeah. I mean, this has to be the year that he gets in. If he doesn't get in this year, I'm okay with him crying. (laughs) You weren't okay with him crying No, I was okay with it last year too. But I'm okay with him like weeping this year because he absolutely should get in yeah i i think he's going to and uh let's hope um i don't know I, we, again this is another guy we talked about a lot last week when we talked about our defensive players of the year uh he continues to be just one of if not the most impactful defenders in the league and offensively especially lately you know he, he's been great as well and he is really a big part of that team's offense. I know people clowned on David Locke for tweeting out the triple-double statistics with the screen. Well, assist, that, was a, that was a asinine tweet. 
Maybe so, but I think it deserves mention that like that that is such a pick and roll heavy team, and he is Gobert is a very good screener and a very good dive man, and he's a big part of making that pick and roll heavy offense work. And it has worked. Like you know, they got off to a sluggish start, but they're back up into like top ten range as an offensive team. They've been, I think, the best offense in the league over the last six weeks, and he's been a huge part of that. So I think he should be a no debtor. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. No I, I don't think there should be a debate over whether Rudy Gobert is an All Star this yeah. year. Okay, backcourt um, starters: Harden and Doncic. Yeah. Again, um, just completely dominant offensive players. We've talked about it all season, but just two guys who you know essentially run their entire team's offenses and they're the two best offenses in the league right now so i you know i have them both in the top four in the mvp race i don't think there's anybody who comes close to being in their tier when it comes to uh west guards can we go to reserves yeah let's go to reserves. i've got dame yep and donovan mitchell Okay, I have Dame and Chris Paul, but I have Mitchell as my wild card. So I have Chris just, Paul as my wild card. <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, not a ton of differentiation there. Lillard's been amazing. The Blazers have been 61 disappointing. 61 last night. Yeah. Uh, the Blazers have been disappointing as a whole, but, like, that's not on Dame. I think they have sucked defensively, and I do think he's taken a bit of a step back on defense. I think, like, the couple seasons before this, I thought he'd made great strides at that end of the floor, and I think he's back to just, like he's dying on screens like he's not quite as active or engaged i think um his his defensive struggles have been part of the team's defensive struggles i guess you could say but like it's not really like a significant problem like i don't think he is egregiously bad compared to other point guards defensively and offensively he's been utterly brilliant he to me is probably the best pick and roll point guard in the league right now it's him or it's Doncic. If you yeah. want to call Doncic a point guard, which I guess Kemba he is. three, yeah, Kemba's in that mix. But I think Lillard's on another level. Like he is so good at operating the pick and roll, either as a scorer or as a playmaker. I don't know. I, there's just no question to me that he is one of the one of the guard reserves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's tough to be this much of a no brainer while playing on a losing team, but yeah. here we are. Yeah. So. Chris Paul, Donovan Mitchell. I mean, it doesn't. Does it really matter? Like whether you put them in no. as a guard or a wild card? Like I. I guess this was sort of my way of differentiating. Like I, I kind of did it in the East too, where I put, I had Trey Young as a wild card as opposed to like a, a guard reserve because that felt like a way of separating them and saying I think you know that that Middleton and Simmons were more deserving. So I guess I will apply the same logic here and say that if I was splitting hairs and deciding to put one of these guys in over the other, that I would put Chris Paul. Uh, I know, like, he's maybe not as good as he used to be. He's not as explosive. The counting stats aren't quite the same. But he's basically the same guy that he's always been. Just ball handling on a string, orchestrating that offense, playing tremendous help defense, and closing games in a way that essentially no other player in the league has done. Like, he's been the best high-volume crunch time player in the NBA. And... He has taken a Thunder team that I think a lot of people expected to not only miss the playoffs, but essentially just fold up, try and trade guys off, and look toward the future. And now they are solidly the seventh seed in the West. And frankly, like I think they're going to be one and done in the playoffs. I feel pretty confident in saying that. But given like the success that they've had against some of the winning teams in the West, given how well they've played against Houston, for instance... I don't think it's going to be a walkover in the first round. I think as long as they don't get the Lakers or the Clippers, I think they can give any of those other teams a series. Yeah, that was my argument even when I wrote that piece a couple weeks ago about how you know you make the argument they're a smart win-now trade away from like semi-contention. I think they can give any non-LA team in the West a run for their money in the playoffs. And if they make, you know, I'm not saying sell the farm for a win-now trade, but if they just make a smart pickup, at the deadline. I think they're like one or two rotation players and preferably a shooter away from being able to upset any non-LA team. And that's the strength of that five-man lineup with the three guards and Adams and Gallo that I've mentioned so many times. That is the best net rating the last two years. You, you have to consider those things. Yeah, and that's a huge credit to Paul, the fact that he can play with two other point guards and he's adaptable enough to play off of the ball, go maybe a couple possessions in a row without even touching the ball, give guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Dennis Schroeder 
space to operate and space to thrive because he's not getting in their way. He's not stepping on anybody's toes. He moves well without the ball. And when he has the ball, he's setting the table for the rest of the guys on that team, whether it's Steven Adams, whether it's Gallo. Um, I think he's been the biggest driver of their success and their success has been wholly surprising and it's been a, a really great story, I think. And, and he absolutely deserves to be credited with that, with an all-star berth. 100%. Um, Donovan Mitchell, I think, basically averaging 25-4-4 four, and four on a Jazz team that, while they've gotten great contributions from Bogdanovich, haven't gotten nearly what they thought they would out of Mike Conley. And a big part of the reason they've been able to survive that is because Donovan Mitchell has taken that kind of next step in his star development. The numbers aren't much different. I think it's like one point per game better than it was last year. But he's a little more efficient. I think he's been better defensively than he's ever been. And, I mean, I guess pick between him and Gobert, who you truly think is more valuable. I understand if anyone argues that Gobert's rim protection and defense has been more valuable. But I think you can also make the case for Donovan Mitchell being their most valuable player this year. And if that's the case, you know, we're saying he might be the most valuable player on a team that's 30-13 and right now and tied with the Clippers. It's like a pointless argument to even have, like, which of those guys is more important. Because I guess... Gobert is a little bit more portable and that you could take him and put him on any team and what he does would give them, you know, no matter what the team was, an extremely high defensive baseline. And you could just like stick him in pick and roll with basically any semi-competent pick and roll point guard and he would still do what he does. And the team, you know, would be pretty effective probably. But he is still, you know, at the offensive end, a very dependent player. And, like, if you were to put him on a team without a player like Donovan Mitchell, who can run the offense, who is going to soak up a ton of on-ball possessions, and especially late in games, be able to get them across the finish line, then, you know, what he does at the defensive end wouldn't matter nearly as much. I think the, the point is they complement each other extremely well. Their skill sets together make the Jazz a force at both ends of the floor, so I think it's sort of pointless to say this guy's more important than this guy. I think you should essentially say they're both really important to the Jazz's success, and I think they're both all-star worthy. Uh, and I agree with everything you said about Mitchell as far as him being a more efficient offensive player. As an on-ball guy, I think he's gotten better. Like He's essentially played full-time point guard in Mike Conley's absence. Conley's back now, but he's coming off the bench playing like 15, 18 minutes a game. Looks bad, too. Yeah, he was good last night, though. Um, and it was really nice to see, actually, to him like him come back and play with some confidence. He had a really nice stretch in the second quarter as they built their lead over the Pacers. So that was nice to see. But yeah, like it's been Mitchell's show, and I think he's done a wonderful job of running that offense. So the only thing I'll add is that I think it's worth monitoring uh, Donovan Mitchell's both his shot selection and his efficiency in the second half of the season because, strangely enough, his efficiency's gone up despite the fact that his three point attempt rate has come down. And he's taking more of his shots from like 10 to 16 feet and long two. So basically mid-range and long two is going up. Three-point attempt rate coming down, and yet his efficiency has gone up. Now credit to him, he's making those shots. And maybe that he's going to be one of those guys that just makes those shots and he can get to those spots. You know, like we just waxed poetic about Chris Paul who dominates in the mid-range. Mm-hmm. Maybe Donovan Mitchell slowly becomes that guy, but I do think that's worth watching because his efficiency from the mid-range and long two right now is well above what it was the first two years and I don't know how sustainable that is yeah I mean he's clearly worked on that element of his game and I think defenses are really playing him for the drive because he has been such an aggressive driver I think he's a really creative finisher around the basket but you have teams essentially like not only are they are they loading up against his drive but they're loading up against Gobert's role like they're hanging back and making sure to take away that lob and when that's the case, when the defense is playing the pick and roll at the rim, you have to be able to burn them in the mid-range. You have to be able to burn them with pull-up mid-rangers and floaters. And he's done that exceptionally well this season. And I don't know if it's going to continue at the efficiency that he's shown so far. But he's clearly taken steps to address that part of his game and make sure that that can be a weapon. And that's been a big part of why he's had such a great offensive season. Okay, so we've both got LeBron, we've both got AD, we've both got Jokic, we've both got Kawhi, we've both got Gobert, we've both got Harden, Doncic, Lillard, Mitchell, and Paul. Yeah. You've got Towns and I've got Ingram. Yeah. We both have one wild card left. Devin Booker. Same. Man, <laughs> this is ridiculous. I thought for sure the fact that I went with both Trey Young and Devin Booker was going to cause some debate. Yeah. yeah and no. I was so ready for it. And I've been... Lubed my throat up for this. <laughs> 
Uh, drank some water, drank some hot tea with lemon and honey. Yeah, I apologize. And it was a man. waste. You did it for nothing. Now you're just railing about the fact that we have nothing to disagree about. <laughs> well, I got to rail about something. Yeah, I I have not been a huge Devin Booker fan in the past. I think that he, like, I don't think that anybody is necessarily like an totally empty stats guy like especially if you're averaging 27 and 7 like Booker did last year he is obviously a spectacular offensive talent but he he hasn't really contributed to team success at any point in his career his defense has been abysmal and frankly like he hasn't been nearly efficient as an offensive player as he's been this season like he is having an outrageous offensive year I mean 57% from two-point range, 36% from three-point range, which is still, like, the kind of player that he is, you would expect his three-point percentage to be a little bit better than it's been in his career, but that's still the the second-best three-point percentage of his career, and he's doing it on pretty high volume. Seven free-throw attempts per game, and he's shooting them at 92%. 27 points, 6.4 assists, 63.2% true shooting, and... I do think his defense has been a lot better this year than it's been in years past. I don't think it's been quite as good as it was at the start of the season. Um, He hasn't been quite as good at getting over screens. He's not applying quite as much ball pressure. I think early in the year, he was really like making a point of putting in maximum effort at that end of the floor. And I don't think that's really been the case lately, but I still think even though they've fallen off and they aren't quite the, the amazing story that they were at the start of the season, I still think the Suns are overachievers. This year, you know, to be on pace for like 35 wins, considering the expectations they came into the season with, I still think this qualifies as a success and they're outscoring teams with Booker on the floor. So I think he is absolutely worthy. And, um, you know, it came down to him versus Ingram for me. And I think the case for both of them was pretty similar. They're on losing teams, but the teams aren't losing because of them. They're excellent at the offensive end, somewhat suspect at the defensive end. And uh, I, I gave Booker the nod, but it was really close. I just I think he's been unbelievable. Yeah, look, I I was never I never used to be a big Booker guy, and then last year he won me over, and I wrote about him at the end of last season, and essentially said, "Don't you like the Suns are still a mess, but don't you dare blame Devin Booker for it." Towards like down the stretch of last season, second half of last season, the Suns were a solid team when Devin Booker was on the court, which was insane because they were ter- that team was awful last year. Okay. Devin Booker still has not won 25 games in a season. Do you understand that? This guy's now been in the league half a decade and has not cracked the 25-win plateau. He should do that this year. And so it's very easy to look at him and be like, well, he's been the best player on that team through that time. He bears a lot of the responsibility. He bears some responsibility, no doubt about it. But the last year and a half now, we're talking about a year and a half sample size where the Suns have basically been a positive rating team with this guy on the court despite everything that's gone on around him. He's unbelievably efficient despite a high usage on the offensive end. His defense has improved, although it's still not great. For me, it came down to Booker, uh, Paul George, because mm-hmm. I already had Ingram in. Right. Um, Towns was like in the back of my mind, but I really just don't think he's played enough. I, I, I've gone on against him already. I thought Russ, despite you know the things we do rail against him, I think he was in the conversation. And the last month, if you look at the he's way he's played way, since way like better. early December, he's been way better. Mm-hmm. So for me, it ended up this last spot came down to Booker, Paul George, and Russ. The reason I went with him over Paul George is that he's played more than 600 extra minutes than Paul George this season. And do I think Paul George is the better basketball player? Yeah. We can only go by what we're, we're supposed to go by what's happened this season for mm-hmm. All-Stars and 600 extra minutes is a freaking lot. So then it became Devin Booker versus Russell Westbrook. I think they are both at times tire fires on the defensive end. I think Russ's game is a lot more All-Star friendly in that he's this high flyer that plays relentless ball and he'll create highlights. And I think Devin Booker's been better this year. Point blank, you know, I think you can throw defense out the window for both of them. Although I think Devin Booker's tried harder on that end this season, and then I think Devin Booker's been the better offensive player. Right? Yeah, I, I have no debate there, and I agree. Like Westbrook is in the conversation, but I didn't ever really seriously consider him. I just think there were too many good candidates, and as much as yeah, he's been better lately, and he has helped the Rockets in a lot of different ways. The pressure he puts on the rim, the way that he gets them going in transition. Those have all been important factors, but I just think ultimately, you know, sort of like I was saying with Simmons, right, where 
the the limitations of that team have a lot to do with his own limitations. I feel that way about Westbrook with the Rockets too, and that ultimately is why I couldn't put him in this mix. So, who are some of your snubs if you have any? Ingram obviously was the biggest one. PG was a big one, um, and then the only other two that I even gave any thought to were SGA and John Morant. Nice, um, but I still think you know as much as Morant is a spectacular highlight factory of a player and obviously a gifted offensive player. I think, you know, he's still a clear minus at the defensive end, and I just don't think he is quite there yet, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the All-Star game next year. He's just on a crazy upward trajectory, and what he has done with that Grizzlies team has been pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I'd agree. So there you have it. I wonder if, you know, the way that the All-Star starting vote shakes out is going to throw a wrench in any of this, but if Cash and I were picking. Those are our picks. We agreed on 23 out of 24 All-Stars. So not a, not a ton of debate to be had there, but um, I hope we made a convincing case for everybody on our list. And uh, with that, we're going to let you go. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.